Go Wild is a free social community created for and by hunters. This means that unlike mainstream social media, your trophy pictures won't be censored. They're encouraged. As you spend time on Go Wild, you will earn awesome rewards such as gift cards, free swag, and big discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex. You will even earn $10 just for signing up. Visit DownloadGoWild.com and sign up today. All right, we're back again with the Pennsylvania Woodsman Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We know, Robbie. Not a whole lot, Mitchell. Just still uh, still trying to get through this new house process and setting up for that, getting into the spring here. You're, it's fun signing your life away when you oh, buy a house, yeah, isn't I it? Yeah, I know. I know. Uh, I thought it was a lot of paperwork just going to see the house. Now it's now it's one getting sent one thing after another, both lender, real estate agent, so. But it's for the good. It's all for the better. It is for the better. I mean, you guys, you guys lucked out because it was like getting like down to the nitty gritty when you would be able to get a house and close all and like not that you didn't have a place to stay, but it was like the timing when you guys are getting married and stuff. Like, yeah, it was. We we weren't getting nervous or anything, but we were every every night we were talking about it, and it just happened. House came up. Next day we saw it. Next day bid on it. Next day we got it. So really, really blessed and lucky for that. It was and like as terrible as this market is right now for home like buying a home like that was the first one you guys put an offer in on yeah and i remember you know three years ago when my wife and i were in the process of trying to buy a house we put four offers in before we finally got a house yeah i think we just we just stumbled across something that was and it was below our budget so that's even a greater plus not just finding a place but something that yeah, so now you'll be able to spend more money on hunting stuff. Yeah, and I said, I said, to, I said to her, I said, well, we're saving, we're saving a good bit of money. I can just buy a new truck, and that'll pay for the truck, that extra money. Buy for <laughs> buy a new truck, maybe go on a hunting trip. <laughs> yep, yep. You going? Are you planning on trying to set up to go out west anytime soon? Yeah, I'm, uh, my dad and I have been talking about it a lot. He wants to get out. Uh, some rules are changing out west, so he wants to get out. He has some points for Wyoming uh, that he wants to. Use you've been and, putting points and in. I, yeah i've also been putting points in too um so i'm gonna try to get out vacation's tough this year with like i said the wedding and honeymoon and all that and i'm only two years into a job so i don't have a whole lot but uh i'm hoping to get out hopefully for for antelope this year uh four or five nice. days out there and that would be october right yeah october would be in october it's tough too with because i'm coaching football as well so it's going to be a big balancing act now you're coaching football is your dad still coaching yeah he's coaching as well um he's he he doesn't uh, i mean he cares about it but he uh he's his number one passion is hunting so once hunting comes he'll he'll, well he coached for a real long time yeah he coached youth for 12 12 15 years gets to be hard to balance that because like like i know you guys love football i mean you guys love football way more than i ever did i mean i played with you guys but i I kind of lost my interest, but you you still hold that passion. Yeah. That's the same time. It's just kind of hard to juggle that. Yeah, and it's nice now too. My dad used to coach youth. That's all weekend. Yeah. Now it's we're coaching middle school, so it's just during the week. Um, sometimes not even on Friday, so Monday through Thursday really. So that's that's good for hunting season. Yeah, hopefully it works out for you that way. But anyway, the uh, 
topic of interest this week, um, I did an episode, um, had a phone call with Phil Holcomb. So if you guys would have remembered back from fall, um, I did a did an intro, was talking about some of the, the upcoming things, and I did an episode with Phil and had some issues with some audio quality and stuff like that, and we decided we weren't going to air this episode, but Phil's been somebody who reached out to me, and uh, we, we've you know, become pretty good friends. We're always calling, you know, texting back and forth and talking about whitetails and whitetail hunting. And he's been sending me some sheds from this past year, man. That guy's been putting some boot miles on shed hunting, but, uh, he, uh, we connected over, uh, small properties talking about trying to manipulate small properties. Um, he, he caught, he uh, reached out to me after the episode I did about my, my big buck I shot here at my place. So, that was uh, that was kind of cool, neat connection. Um, but he's had a lot of success on his small property. Um, you know, he's has uh, what we would consider, a, I guess, a micro parcel. It's like ten acres, I believe. But you know, we kind of pick his brain on just the evolution of that and kind of his thought process and and making daylight activity and hunting opportunity happen on that property and what his philosophy is. And you know. I've I've talked about this and Phil talks about it too. Like you can't you have to calibrate your expectations. You know, if your expectation is you're gonna do anything to the property and you're gonna kill a giant, that's not really your expectation, but um or that's not a realistic expectation, but you know, realistic would be um can I keep a day keep daylight attraction on my property and potentially harvest the best deer in the area. You know, maybe the best deer in the area is is a as a two hundred year hundred inch two year old, and I mean that's a that's a trophy a lot of places, you know if you get lucky like me the best deer in the area the year I killed them was a hundred and seventy inch deer and that that can happen you just got to calibrate it with the right information. <coughs> but uh, yeah, Phil's uh, Phil's a, a just a guy with a ton of knowledge and he's got some other other podcasts out with the Habitat guys and uh, he'll he, I think he talks about that a little bit. But uh, we'll have the links in the description for that. But uh, I think it'll be something you might want to get out and start doing some habitat work on, maybe get the chainsaw out. <laughs> but all right, well, uh, we'll, uh, we'll we'll tune into this episode, and uh, thanks for tuning in, guys. So here with me today, we got Phil Holcomb back on for hopefully a little bit of a better experience. Last time we tried this, we had some audio technicalities, which is uh, what we were, what we were experiencing today. We we tried something different; it didn't work. But Phil, how are you? How you been, man? I'm doing great, man. Um, great to uh, great to talk to you again. And uh, like uh, like you said, hopefully uh, we don't have any of the uh, technical difficulties uh, that we. Uh, we had uh earlier yeah this is a long time coming for sure and we've been we've been texting back and forth ever since throughout hunting season and through uh into shed season you're sending me some pretty nice shed antlers how many times you get out this year um kind of really only twice um and uh (laughs) i would say that probably um the two times that i went out specifically with that kind of in mind, I, I didn't pick anything up. Um, the, the three that I've found so far were like, uh, the first set I found, um, driving out of the road, up the road, out of my buddy's camp. And it comes up through a, a little, little patch of, uh, 
public land and um still we still had quite a bit of snow and we had a real icy two three inch crust like rock solid and i drove up through this one spot and i saw a pretty good trail worn down and i just stopped and i looked out the truck window and saw a pretty good track and i thought oh just get out and uh you know take a look at that track investigate a little bit more because there was a there were um two pretty good bucks in that area that we were uh kind of trying to get dialed in on in the in in the fall and uh so i'm i see that it kind of goes up the hill a little bit up off the road there's a hemlock branch that came down in the ice storm and um the deer were actually completely just stripping the hemlock needles off of that branch um like i said with that deep ice crust you know they they couldn't get to anything that was on the ground mm-hmm. and uh pretty much anything that they could get into like hemlock was, was getting eaten pretty uh pretty hard so i saw the tracks going up there i walked up to that and um was just kind of inspecting that area and um just another 10 or 15 yards up the hill uh borders uh the edge of a clear cut and there's two flat spots that i've routinely seen deer bed on from the road and it's only like 70 yards off the road so i decided i better go up there and just take a quick look at those beds um and uh as i got closest to the the one um flat spot you could see there was an old depression in the snow um and the, just the very tips of the tines were sticking up out of it laying in the middle of the bed and uh i basically knew i i there was no way i could just pick it up i was gonna have to um excavate it <laughs> so i just happened to happen to look over to my right and the other bedding depression had um basically the g3 and the tip of the main beam were sticking up out and it was a match set so um fortunately being close to the truck went back down and uh um i had my saw kit in the back and i always have a, a small hatchet in there so went up back up with the hatchet and dug the dug both those sheds out and it turned out to be um match set from one of the two bucks in that in that area that we were kind of trying to uh get some intel on um and uh so that wasn't even really a shed hunt i mean i was literally just looking at deer tracks and deer sign and not really expecting much of anything and then um <clears throat> the other one was in the same area off of the same road um opposite side of the road probably 125 yards away from that where that match set was laying uh we had a camera down there and i had decided well i'm gonna go down and pull that camera um and uh, i wanted to see if the buck that i had just picked up the match set from had you know been uh active in the area of that camera and so i walked down and i i pulled the camera and i was walking back up to the truck and just happened to look over and in between these two giant hemlocks on the edge of another cut um was laying a nice five point side and that was from the uh, you know the second of the the two bucks that we had kind of been looking for so that was pretty cool um i'll take them anyway i can get them even if i'm not technically looking for them and then of course finding those three you know made me feel like i had to get out and go take a look uh in some other places and and of course you know 
when you put the time in like that and you end up uh you know coming up empty-handed <laughs> yeah i've never spent <laughs> that did find ter- them yeah go ahead i've never spent that terrible much time shed hunting with the, the best shed i found this year i was driving a side by side in a food plot and there it laid it's just the way it works <laughs> But that sounds like pieces yeah. of the puzzle for a for a future podcast episode on somebody's show is what that sounds like. Yeah, I hope so. I I really hope so. I think there's um uh t- there's there's definitely two really good uh targets uh that definitely, you know, made it through uh through the season and um they look location of the sheds and then the the intel that was on that camera. Um and uh uh, just <clears throat> kind of knowing that particular area, I think we, I think I know what, why we couldn't close the deal um, this past fall. Um, basically, they were betting, uh, at least the one buck was, was betting a little bit closer than I really thought that he was. And I'm pretty sure he was uh, aware of our, our access. So uh, I already kind of have an idea for how to uh make that not be the case and um i'm gonna get uh a camera positioned where i think will give me a little better intel on whether or not that deer is using um there's like a a set of like three beds that i found in a in like a probably less than a quarter of an acre area in this cut and i think that that's those are three three beds that three of the beds that that deer uses and i think i got an idea the type of conditions he might be using it on. So yeah, hopefully it's something, uh, something that works out. Um, now will that be uh, a location you'd be able to use a cell camera or are you still in a position where no cell service is going to happen in those locations? Yeah. Unfortunately there is no cell service, uh, in that area. Um, because if there were, I, I actually would probably push it a little bit closer to the, the bed that's, it would be the closest bed to um, my anticipated access route. So um, that way I could kind of tell, get a time frame um, on, you know, when that deer is moving out of that bedding area uh, and what direction he's specifically exiting the bedding area. Because I think that that was uh, kind of one of the key factors that, that didn't give us a, a good chance. I uh, one of my one of my buddies at camp, I was really trying to get them the ability to get in position on this deer last year, um, <clears throat> and uh, that's more or less going to be the same same format this year. I think um, it would be a good good opportunity for him um, to be able to to capitalize on, and while I'm kind of focusing my my efforts on some other places. So, hey, no doubt, no doubt. Now you had a I mean, like I said, I, I keep us updated with that. I think that's an awesome setup. Now, you had a pretty good hunting season this past year. I saw killed a pretty nice, pretty nice buck with your bow. Uh, sent me a picture. You you got a doe in the late season with the flint lock, and I think you were able to take the kids out. Uh, I mean, cue us in a little bit on how how that went this past year. Yeah, <clears throat> this uh, this fall was was pretty good, uh, pretty good one for sure. Um, probably the the biggest, uh, uh, biggest harvest was, uh, my son was able to, to get his first deer. Um, and, uh, so that was, you know, that was huge. That was awesome. Uh, just an unreal experience. Um, 
I literally have never, um, never been impacted by adrenaline. Um, like, like I did in that particular instance, I'm, um, you know, obviously we all get, we, we all get the adrenaline dump and that's a big part of why we do what we do. But, um, (laughs) for the most part, I've been fortunate enough over the years to be able to keep myself fairly, you know, in control. (laughs) And, uh, when it looked like we were going to get an opportunity and Jackson was going to get an opportunity at this deer, um, I actually started to feel like uh, I was like, like I was cross-eyed. I could not focus my vision. I, I couldn't do it. And, (laughs) and I, my heart, I swear that deer could hear my, my heart beating and I, I just erratic breath. And like, I had very little control over like fine motor skills, my digits, my hands and stuff. Um, like I've never, it took me a long time to compose myself after he made the shot. Like <laughs> how old is Jackson? Where I felt like he's eight. He had just, just, just about turned eight. Just, just before his eighth birthday is when he, he got, uh, got to shoot that deer. So that was, um, yeah, it was pretty, it's pretty wild. Highlight of the season, regardless what happened after that, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this coming season, but, um, no, and then I was, I was fortunate enough to shoot a nice buck in, uh, in archery season, uh, November 4th. Uh, and then, um, I, yeah, I was able to get a, a doe with a flintlock, um, which is my new kind of obsession. I, I would think I, I can call it that, uh, flintlock hunting is just, I don't know why, but it, it's, it's, the past couple of years has been like kind of actually what I look forward to the most in, in deer season is there's just something about January, um, you know, cold snow, um, big woods tracking, you know, still hunting and using a firearm such as a flintlock where, you know, it's just, it's, they're just, they're just super cool weapons. They're, they're fun to shoot. Um, you know, you, you do have that, that, uh, that nagging kind of, uh, anxiety of, is it really going to go off? <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, you spend enough time shooting them and, and learning the, the, the weapon and learning, you know, what conditions are going to possibly impact your ignition and stuff like that. You, you start to get pretty well dialed in and, and you can figure out like, you know, how to, how to offset those things and, and do the right things to, to make right. that gun go off as, as fast as possible. It's a whole, and, it's um, a whole different set of variables. I mean, it's been a close second for me too. I mean, I, I've been a bow hunting fanatic my whole life, but I mean, that flintlock season, there's, there's something special. And most people, like if you're not from Pennsylvania and then you see us going out in the late season and here we can only use a flintlock muzzleloader season, like most people are like, what kind of stupid rule is that? But it's one of the things that's like, <laughs> don't knock it until you try it. It is up blast it is absolutely a blast it is and like i've been i've been promoting it to to like anybody in in my you know within my circle of friends and stuff anyone that doesn't have a flintlock or you know hasn't tried it 
I'm I'm like all about like let's come on up shoot shoot them a couple of times you know and once you do that you're gonna be like wow that actually that was pretty cool and then you're gonna want to you know actually you know get into it and you know put the effort in and and then like you said that that season is just there's something there is just something about it um you know after it, it's hard there's obviously the standing stock has been reduced by you know all the previous hunting pressure um so there's just there's literally just fewer deer on the landscape at that point in time of the year the ones that are left are generally pretty hardwired to you know wound for sound and and not looking to uh um give you too many opportunities um you know it's cold it's really cold <laughs> you, no doubt. you quite often have a lot of snow um and uh the deer are just you know kind of working into that winter pattern and and um you know food is super important cover is super important and um me i just i just like to get into get into areas that uh look like they they have the habitat that would um be attractive and then get in there find the sign find tracks still hunt or literally actually track um and uh it's amazing like it's just I think, um, honestly, since I started to really hunt the flintlock season and I really started to sharpen and, and hone a lot of, um, a lot of valuable hunting skills and woodsmanship skills that, um, I just hadn't really, you know, put to the, put to the test, um, previously or, or at least not as often. And, um, I think, I think I've really kind of have grown as a, uh, as a deer hunter, um, you know, in the, in the past couple of years, uh, in, in, in terms of those types of situations. Yeah, without a doubt. Um, it's, it's generally for me, it's a little bit more of a relaxing hunting season. And I say that because normally in the past few years, I've had a buck tag filled and I, I, I mean, if you ask my wife, I become like more human after I fill my buck tag. <laughs> And then this yeah. year when that didn't happen, I was even less human in flintlock season because I was driving hard after like one specific deer and just didn't happen because that's the way it goes, um, unfortunately. Yep. But, you know, it, it is a great time, but it's a great way to get out. It's a great way to scout. It's like getting your getting yep. late season scouting. You're still getting that. Um, you're still getting that sign and that vibe of what the deer were doing in October, November, December, and you can relate it well, but it's an opportunity to usually just put boots on the ground, explore new territory. And, you know, without a doubt, it's, uh, it's clearly a missed opportunity for a lot of people. Anybody who, uh, who engages in that season, they, uh, they know what we're talking about, but so I want to, I want to yeah. shift gears yep. a little bit and kind of talk in, you know, kind of sure. talk the meat and potatoes of what we were actually wanted to, to discuss today. So, you know, back at the beginning of the year here, we started talking about changing some stuff on private land and really trying to have an impact on your property. If you're not seeing the quality results that you want to see, you know, whatever your goals are. And, uh, you know, we're, we're generally talking on small properties. We're talking about, you know, those 40, 50, 100 acre parcels that, you know, most people would think, you know, I can't have a big enough impact to reach the goals I want to. And, you know, I and, and a lot of the guests that I had speak over those topics, you know, we argued that you could make a difference and here's how to apply those. And, uh, you know, 
you uh, for the the backstory for for you that you know if nobody else would would know this that's listening is you know you hunt some big woods tracks and you've hunted some other private land but you've kind of indulged in really micromanaging what we would consider like a micro parcel um and, and you know that's that's just been something you've really done well at on your own property and uh you know if anybody is is in disbelief of small properties and and making positive things happen you know talk to phil because he's experienced (laughs) those positive things from the beginning so i mean you you killed your buck this year on your property and uh you killed some other dandies there so i mean let's just break this down on, on a slow point i mean how big is this property and like how have you dissected or, or what's your thought process in a micro track to dissect it and have some type of lasting influence throughout hunting season? Yeah. Um, so my, my property is, uh, it's less than nine acres. <laughs> so it's, um, you know, it's not, it's not very big in, in most, uh, scenarios, most terms of, uh, of what people would think of and with, uh, with hunting property. Um, and, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's just, it, it, it was a, uh, a fairly long process to, to kind of get to where it is now. Took a lot of, you know, a lot of trial and error, a lot of learning. Um, and, uh, but it's, you know, it's completely possible, um, to, you know, really focus on, um, you know, having the quality of hunting experience, um, that you're looking for, um, you know, obviously it has to be tempered by reality. Um, you know, what, what the reality of the system, you know, what, what's happening on the ground, where the property is exactly how big it is, exactly how it lays out, how it fits into the, into the surrounding, um, uh, kind of neighborhood, if you will. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, there's just, as long as you, you, you keep it, you know, realistic, uh, you, you set realistic goals. Um, but you also, um, you know, remain flexible and able to pivot and make changes, um, you know, and, and be willing to, to kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, as Steve Bartilla always put it, it was, uh, rigidly flexible, um, just right. uh be able to to you know recognize things um and make changes and not just uh you know be full commit to the to the uh to the plan if it's if it's not realistic you know yeah um, the, the whole goal but, and uh, access thing for sure like goals like you said that that's the best thing have a realistic goal and with those micro tracks, having that mindset that you're just going to hold every deer or the best deer, or you're going to have the biggest <laughs> buck in the neighborhood, that's unrealistic. And I, I think, you know, that's what we talked about in the, the, the beginning here was scaling back our goals. But I, I truly don't believe that it's unrealistic to say on a property that size, you can hold daylight attraction of the best buck in the neighborhood at some point in the season. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, and, and, and like I was saying about, um, you know, to me, the biggest, aside from having realistic goals and expectations, um, the next thing is, 
establishing like where your property fits into the kind of the, the neighborhood of the local deer, right? Um, kind of being able to figure out um, what's going on in the multiple layers of property uh, beyond your borders, right? Um, and, and realizing that all of those things fit together. Um, you can't just be so focused inside that box, inside your 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 borderlines, um, because like you're saying, some you know, <coughs> you're you're most likely not going to, um, you know, house, uh, you know, uh, a single buck uh, within you know the confines of your micro property and and be able to hunt uh, for that buck all the time. You know, like you got to have um, access. You got to understand uh, how to build those layers of attraction um, that basically build that pattern, establish that pattern of um, daylight attraction during hunting season. Um, you know, and, that, and that's another important distinction. I think is is um, habitat manipulation um, for hunting purposes and um, you know, overall habitat improvement. Um, you know, there's, there's kind of a sliding scale there. Uh, it doesn't have to be all one or the other. Um, but when you're talking about a small property and you're specifically interested in hunting, um, you know, you're, you're going to kind of, uh, address, um, you know, the needs, uh, of, of the hunting property first. Um, and then, in doing that, you know, you can kind of start to address some other, um, you know, some other habitat uh, improvement issues like, say, uh, non-native invasive control or non-quote-unquote target species, um, you know, pollinators, this, that. There's a whole whole other world that can be, you know, <laughs> that can be brought into it. But if, you're, if your main goal is hunting... Um, you know, that's really, that's really what you're looking to establish is a huntable pattern of movement, which would be obviously during the daylight, during hunting season, and for as long as possible throughout the hunting season. Um, that's really kind of where it, where it, where it, it needs to be focused. And in some instances that could be kind of centered around food In other instances that could be centered around bedding cover or security cover. Um, in other instances, it can be a blend of both. Um, but that's where, that's where it needs to be figured out. Um, if you don't mind, let me, let's dissect that a little bit before we get any, any further. So you talked about kind of like looking at the con the confines of your neighborhood and, and not being confined to just your parcel. You're talking about zooming out and looking at that. So, you know, without going into too much detail about your own parcel and kind of, you know, giving us the secrets, can, can you give us like an example when you're zooming out and where you see fitting that mold or where that lowest hole in the bucket necessarily is in a neighborhood like what is your mind going through when you're dissecting that general area and then and then implementing that specific practice or whatever it is on a micro track yeah i'm i'm basically just looking to figure out um 
you know, as it is, without anything being done, where are deer living? Like, where are they where are they bedding and where are they feeding? And how are they most likely moving, you know? And, and again, a lot of this is going to be purely speculation based off of e-scouting and or, um, you know, possibly actual observation by driving around where you can, you know, drive around and see and glass fields if you have fields and stuff like that. Um, any number of methods of of observation. Um, you know, in some cases, uh, uh, a lot of neighbors are pretty cooperative anyway. I mean, um, you know, I think too often we have maybe too much of a focus on antagonistic relationship between neighbors. Um, but I think a lot of times um, there's, you know, opportunities there or there already is a good you know, standing, trusting relationship. And, you know, some neighbors, sure, they, they and their family might hunt their property, but they might not really mind if you wanted to go shed hunting or, you know, scouting or whatever it is, you know. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot of ways to kind of develop uh, a feel for um, what's going on, how the, how the local deer are kind of relating to the landscape um, not only directly on your property, but around it. And from there, you can kind of try to assess um, what are some holes in the lowest, some, like what's the lowest hole? Like is your property kind of amongst bedding cover already? Um, if so, um, you know, is it doe bedding? Um, is it maybe even an area where bucks are spending time, you know, like, starting to figure out where that fits. Um, I think a lot of times um, where a lot of micro properties end up kind of fitting is being attractive to a doe family group or multiple doe family groups and then utilizing that um, to basically, um, you know, be a, uh, a rut-focused hunting location. Um, I think that that's kind of like lowest hanging fruit for most small properties right probably um the kind of the easiest um kind of um manipulation out of all of it to, to kind of do um and then so there you know in that particular you know hypothetical what you're really looking to do is find a way to get does onto the property during daylight during the hunting season and then wait for um, the bucks to start to show up to check those does, you know, chase them, seek them, breed them, whatever. Um, for the most part, about mid-October, you know, most people probably heard it a million times about mid-October. In that type of scenario, there's going to be some bucks that are going to start showing up. Uh, signs start going to, you know, start to be laid. Uh, you start seeing the rubs and scrapes and things like that. Um, and, um, so, <clears throat> you know, you, you're just starting to, to kind of like suck in the, the, the neighborhood bucks. And then the other thing that's great about it too, is, you know, maybe the first couple of years it's, it might be kind of sporadic, but as, um, you build that property, um, the attraction, uh, and holding those doe groups, um, and it becomes generational, um, that, that 
local deer herd adapts to that. And it's like those local bucks know that that place exists and that's, um, you know, a place to keep an eye on. That's a place to go to, to start, you know, checking scrapes, making scrapes. Um, you know, obviously one of the attractions that you really can kind of use to your advantage is a mock scrape. Um, and with the goal of creating a community scrape, um, you know, the traditional scrape that is used by both sexes and all age classes all year around. Um, those places become those hubs of activity, um, and, and they really become the focus of, of, of bucks. Um, you know, it's the place where they come to check in. You know, I have a couple of um, – I have two main – big scrapes on my property that I made. Um, one is, uh, I want to say this was the 10th year. Um, so it's, it's multi-generational. It's been there a long time and it's really been built into the, like to the kind of collective, <laughs> uh, you know, herd, um, and the, and the doe mm-hmm. family groups that are constantly in the area, they're always using it. They're always utilizing the licking branches. Um, and it became, it's now a place where, um, generally speaking, most bucks in the area are aware of it. They, they have encountered it, you know, multiple times. And you start to get into the bucks that were, you know, talking in the older age classes. Chances are they have three, you know, two, three years of, you know, utilizing that scrape and, um, and knowing about what time of year, you know, <laughs> So usually about mid-October, you get it, you you know start to get them to to come to that scrape. It may not be daylight yet, but as you creep closer to the end of the month, it starts to get um, to be a daylight attraction. Um, but uh, that kind of dovetails into um, you know the rest of it. Uh, all the other uh, it's usually like layers of attraction. Right, um, right, right. I think a lot. Yeah, so you, so just to recap, make sure I got you. So you're really talking about creating a conditional use of that property through all sorts of attractions. You know, I think it's pretty much expected that we talk about food, we talk about cover, and we talk about direction and stuff and mock scrapes. But really, your importance you're seeing is that conditional use of that property on a on a on a regular basis. Correct. Yep, and and I always I like I said it, it, I think it. It starts. It starts with, um, you know, with that with that hunting focused, um, you know, manipulation, and and that's going to be, you know, that fall winter attraction. But yeah, dive into that it, for a second. Especially in the in the instance of if you're trying to basically create a place where the does are going to be uh, when the bucks are interested in the does, um, you can. You know, does in, in in most places and in a lot of places, the does don't. Their home ranges are pretty small, so chances are, if they're going to be there in the fall and winter, they're also going to be there in the spring and summer. So sometimes um, it's it's really not a bad idea to end up working your way beyond the fall and winter attraction to making other improvements that support um, spring and summer attraction. Um, because 
you might as well have that, um, you know, have your property be that focal point of a local doe group or two um, that's just basically only going to help you out in the long run when you're talking about hunting focused, you know, small properties. So, um, but, uh, you know, in, in my particular instance, um, basically a small, uh, yet highly attractive food plot with good security cover, um, built around it with, uh, availability of, um, desired, uh, natural browse, um, and other natural forages, um, and, uh, and creating patterns of movement, um, that are, uh, able to be, um, capitalized on, um, from a hunting standpoint, um, is really what it, it kind of boils down to. So you, it's not a matter of just throwing a food plot, um, wherever it's most convenient, you know, thinking about where it's located in terms of you being able to have access, uh, to be able to hunt it. Um, yeah, you're not talking it. about cookie cutter situations. You're really talking about manipulating it to what the landscape is and, and coupling that with a good hunting strategy. Exactly. And, you know, I think, um, you know, access, which, you know, you hear a lot, and there's a reason why it's it's extremely important uh but not only access but once you get into your stand um being able to remain undetected um that's that's a key thing so really paying attention to to wind and thermals um and where the deer are coming from and where they're you're expecting them to go um where the manipulation part comes in, um, say they're bedded off the property, which isn't a terrible thing. I know a lot of people might think, oh, well, you know, I want to, I want to, you know, attract and hold. So I got to have the bedding on my property. Sometimes you don't want that from an access and a huntability standpoint. Um, you, if they're bedded, um, on your property and it may provide access issues, uh, that make make it harder to get in and out undetected or remain on stand, you know, undetected. So, right. Um, y- it may be advantageous if they're bedded off property. What that gives you the ability to then do is influence and manipulate how they enter your property, and then how they move through it, and then how they exit it. In doing so, with keeping your access and your your hunting location in mind, right? So, um, in wooded scenarios, uh, doing things like I call it like a, like a, a hopper or a collection, a collection trail. So at the, uh, at the point where I'm trying to, um, move deer into the property further, um, I may be using hinge cutting and conventionally felling trees and using the tops and the, um, you know, the, the trunks, um, and, uh, and hinge cuts and everything else to create, you know, think of, um, you know, your traditional funnel or a hopper, it's wide at the top and then it narrows down. Right. Right. So I want to collect them into that widest part 
and then start to narrow it down. Um, and I'm not talking like, you know, you can't narrow it down to a, you know, um, like a cattle shoot or something like that just doesn't work. Certainly but not. if it's, you start it, you know, it's 50, 60 yards wide at its, at the wide end, you know, and it's just slowly tapering down to where it's maybe 20 yards and it's always suggestive. It's not a barricade. It is not an inescapable, um, you know, route. You got to give them the ability to escape. Um, you got to give them that feeling that they can, they can maneuver and get out of that. Even though it feel, you know, it might be getting tighter, might be, you know, they might be feeling like they're getting tightened down. As long as they feel like they can get out of it, they're way more likely to use it. So, um, you know, that might really include uh, when when felling trees or hinge cutting, doing so in a way that's perpendicular to the line, the generalized line of travel, so that there's gaps um, that they can navigate out of. Um, so that's something I would use in a transition from like a, you know, forested scenario heading towards, um, you know, maybe a field uh, field edge or an old old field type habitat, early successional habitat, um, coming into that transition. And then um, maybe that's a opportunity for, you know, a food plot focal point, laying that food plot out so that um, it promotes, uh, you know, the, uh, the deer feeling safe um, in daylight hours, uh, having good security cover, breaking up the visual um, like sight lines of the deer, so they can see far, just far enough, but not like they can stand in one corner and visually scan the entire field. Um, you know, just um, moving, basically the, the the idea of just moving, collecting the deer from um, from somewhere else, and then uh, kind of steering them into where you know where you want or where's most advantageous to you from a hunting standpoint, giving them a focal point attraction that puts them in front of you um, for long enough um, to be able to make an assessment and make a shot if, if need be. Right. Um, right. And then using things to position them um, to, to make the shot, you know, you can set your mock scrapes up your water holes um, things like that to put them in a position for you to make a really good slam dunk, high percentage shot. Um, the same, the same can also be said with, with those, um, those kind of collection trails. Um, you can use them, um, set up on them to get those high percentage shots by strategically leaving certain trees or, um, high hinging or whatever, where, the deer goes behind something, gives you the opportunity to get drawn, and when they come out the other side, they're you know right there broadside. Um, all the while using the kind of the angle of the of the collection trail or the steering trail to also help keep the deer's vision kind of focused away from your stand location. Um, doing things like that, I think, really like the small details. Uh, of the, of the hunting strategy, uh, and the manipulations are the ones that kill the deer, right? Because you could do all of that 
um, and say not have the ability to not kept a tree or some brush to give you the opportunity to get drawn and but you have everything else and it works exactly perfectly until you go to get drawn and you get busted right right so those those little details are the ones that are are the ones that kill um but uh you know that <clears throat> those are all you know some fine tuning things that you know take uh, took some time i mean it took a lot of getting busted <laughs> and uh um you know so um and then I think it's also just important is important to direct them off the property where you want, you know, where I, I, I don't, I get, I don't necessarily like to say where you want, make them do what you want because it's not necessarily, that's not necessarily how it works. Right. It's more like I'm trying to, 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 um, suggest, make it <laughs> suggest, make it suggestive enough that this is, and, and it's the, it, the way it's laid out is just the way that the deer naturally unpressured are just more than likely going to, to do that. And it's, and it's in a way that's the most advantageous, um, you know, for, for the hunter. Um, right. so <clears throat> you're talking I about, think of it as like a, yeah, I, I, sorry about that. If you got a thought there, keep going. I was just going to say, you're really talking about, being uh, using subtle transitions and, and multiple things so you're talking about you know we talked about hinging trees and directionally funneling down you talked about um anything you would typically hear on a property improvement in a food plot and a water hole and a mock scrape but you're really talking about funneling those into the most opportune location and you're, what you're doing is you're trying to keep them into that daylight area, and your goal is to steer them in a direction that you want them to go. Hopefully, it's in an after-dark situation, or it's at a time where they'll be a little bit more safe, but you're, you're at least giving the most opportune location for deer to funnel past you, and it's, it's not a cookie-cutter situation. You're really talking about finding that layout ahead of time and, and gradually making those manipulations. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, um, I personally, I'm, I'm a huge fan of observation, um, of learning of, and, and experimenting. Um, I, I don't like to say these are all the things, you know, you have to do this, you have to use this particular technique, you have to plant this particular species, you know, you have to like, that just doesn't work. Like it's not going to, you can't, it won't always translate to the next property, to the next, you know, to your neighbors, let alone from your property to your, to your neighbors, to three counties away, to the Midwest, to the North, you know, sure. Right. Those absolutes, those absolutes don't always, it's, it's not about the specifics. And I get, I get that a lot. Um, you know, people who, who've reached out and have questions and stuff, and I, I, that, you know, I, I, I like to help people, um, you know, where I can. And I get, a, I, I, quite often I get a lot of questions that are basically looking for a specific, like they want, you know, a, a roadmap, you know, a, you know, turn, make a left here, you know, go three miles, make a right, merge onto the highway, you know, and then you end up at your destination. And it's, it's not always that easy. Um, there, there, it isn't a matter isn't always a matter of just, you know, reading 
uh, off of a recipe. Sometimes you gotta, you gotta simmer some things and smell it and, uh, you know, just see how things go together, try it, you know, see what works best and then try to replicate it. Um, you know, based, based off of the, um, the fundamentals or the principles underneath things. Like, like I said, a steering or collecting, collecting trail. Well, I gave the, the, um, hypothetical of in the wooded situation of using a chainsaw to manipulate it, to make that kind of collection trail. Well, say you have, um, you know, a several acre field of, uh, overgrown brush, uh, and goldenrod, um, and not really any trees. Well, you can get yourself a weed whacker, a brush hog, um, me personally, I really like those little, those DR walk behind, um, brush cutters. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can cut trails through that stuff and the deer will use them. And does that mean that that's the only way they can walk across the property? No, but nine times out of 10, those deer being the path of least resistant type creatures that they are, are going to take that mode trail. Um, and the reason why I bring up the DR walk behind, like the brush head, the brush cutting head on the, the it's an older 12 horsepower, uh, 12, and a, 12 and a half horsepower unit. Mm-hmm. Um, that seems to be like the perfect width. <laughs> it's like, tw- I think it's 28 inches is what the, the, the cutting head on that okay. is. And I feel like you go a little bit wider, it's not quite, it doesn't quite have the same effect. You basically want it to be, everybody has walked into an old overgrown field like that and seen a deer trail go through it, right? Like a, a, a worn, a well-worn trail. Um, it's not the size of a, you know, a six foot or a three foot or even a four, you know, a four foot bush hog, you know, um, rotary mower or something like that. You're just basically trying to make it as obvious and easy as possible without it being um, a road, <laughs> yeah, and like mature bucks are a perfect example in. of that because like a mature buck, I've seen some mature bucks where you have like the, the greatest path of least resistance and they'll walk right down the middle of it. Then I've also seen mature bucks that like it, they just won't use that path of least resistance, whether that's like an old two-track logging road in a, in a wooded situation or that mode yeah. path. Like there's something to be said about that feeling of security where they can feel the brush hit against their legs and the weeds and the, yep. you know, everything about that. And you're doing it in a more subtle way. That's a little bit more natural. And another way I've, I've seen that same thing used is just like with a backpack sprayer and just killing the vegetation yep. with one spray with, you yep. know, kind of get that same kind of feel yeah and for a while i was doing i was actually i was mow i would be mowing like it mowing the trails in like july and then um following up with the backpack sprayer and and then you know um just spraying it off and then not having to worry about a second mowing um but honestly i've it, it just you know time Time being what it is, you know, at, at some point in time, one year, I didn't have time to follow up with a second <laughs> spraying, and I didn't have time to mow when I normally would have, and I mowed a little bit later, and it made no difference. Right. Um, but it, I know some. There's some people that 
are more advocate of mowing and spraying and keeping those trails like really kind of like groomed and maintained, which I totally get, but I don't think that it's completely necessary. Um, and also I, I, like I said, I'm more or less just trying to make it, um, it, when you mow it in like late July, even, um, even into mid August, by the time, um, the middle of October comes around, it does not look like an overly ob- obvious mode trail, but it's an obvious trail. Like, but you don't, you know what I mean? To a, to a, a buck who's just walking onto the property the first, for the first time in a year, you know, or maybe this first time ever, it, it's not like something that is going to be so alarming or anything like that. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I, I like to use, uh, mode, you know, mode trails, um, to kind of direct entry and exit into food plots that are situated in, in kind of early successional habitat. Um, and you know, I, I, what I was going to say earlier, one of the kind of concepts I, I really like the way I try to think of it is like, um, it's kind of like a conveyor, um, you know, with, with the ability to, to press pause or hit the stop button for a few seconds, but it, the way ideally that it works is you don't end up with a bunch of deer spending a whole lot of time milling around you. Um, that's, where it's just upping your chance of being detected. Um, it's just moving them through, uh, the area in a way that gives you the potential for multiple opportunities. Um, you know, in the food plot, eventually deer are going to, if you're going to sit on the plot versus, um, you know, uh, the, the kind of the, the transitions to the plot, because I personally, I I hunt over uh, I hunt over a, a, a small kill plot, um, and it's I have no problem whatsoever. But a lot of that has to do with um, the stand location, the access to it, and the combination of prevailing wind and thermals, and only hunting it on perfect conditions. Um, but sometimes um, the wind still does weird little things, um, that you may have a perfectly forecasted, you know, Northwest 11 miles an hour, uh, in the afternoon, you've got a rising thermal coming up the hill. The two of them are colliding. Eventually the, um, you know, the prevailing takes over and blows your scent stream way out over the valley, you know, out behind you, uh, essentially making you undetected, undetectable by scent right um but every now and then that prevailing wind slacks out and uh that thermal um you know is just changing in um in strength as the sun is moving across the face of the hillside below you you know what i mean right you get that thing that just a little fluke thing and it pushes that scent out that's why i don't want to necessarily promote having them spending a whole lot of time right in on top of me because those are the stupid little things that bust you, you know? So if it's, uh, you know, can be, think of like a kind of like a conveyor that is deer getting on at one end and kind of being moved 
through at a nice pace to the other end, and then they're gone. <laughs> if they're not one you're going to shoot, um, you know, they never know that, you know, you were in their world. So I can relate um, to that greatly. And... <laughs> yeah, I can. I can relate yeah. to that greatly. We, we talk about uh, sitting on food plots. You know, when, I, when we first started, you know, tinkering and learning in, in land management and trying to manipulate it for a good hunt, sitting on food plots, I mean, it just seemed like why wouldn't you want to sit at your food plots? You're attracting deer. And for that very reason, deer stop and the wind does exactly what you described. And then you eventually, if it's a non-target deer, you alert the entire herd. And, you know, those camera <laughs> pictures that you had rolling in, rolling in of mature buck coming there in daylight. And then all of a sudden you don't see them and you, you scratch your head. Well, I guess they weren't there that night. Not exactly how that works. And that's a huge concept. And I, I think that's kind of where I'd like to steer this conversation last before we let it go is, you know, you talked about steering deer and all these great things and how to, the, these wonderful concepts of moving them through this micro track. Um, why don't you talk a little bit in your thought process when it comes to number one, the timing of the hunt and number two, the overall, um, strategy of pressure, because, you know, let's, let's stick with that thought of, our goal, I, you know, you and I, our goal would probably be similar in that we want to try to have an opportunity at one of the best bucks in the neighborhood. And a lot of people think, okay, you do all those things you just talked about, Phil, but I'm still hunting my property and I'm not having those success stories. And a lot of the time, in my opinion, it comes down to how much are you hunting and is the timing correct? So just touch a little bit about, you know, what's going on in your mind with this micro track. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I look at it in, and we were talking earlier, you know, you, you've got your, you know, kind of your quantitative analysis and your qualitative analysis. So, um, if you're going to want to, uh, routinely kind of target having an opportunity at the kind of the upper end of bucks in your neighborhood in terms of age we'll just go with that um then um you kind of have to focus on the, the 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 um qualitative more than the quantitative um y you want to um you want to have an idea of what um what you can and can't get away with um and still ha produce the results so um, from a timing standpoint, um, you know, I'm fortunate in that, um, my place, uh, I can hunt mornings and evenings and all days. Now I have to time them to what's going on with the deer herd locally. Um, I think it's a, a my, my particular situation is a little bit is kind of standard issue for a, a lot of the basic kind of, uh, you know, um, things that you, you kind of hear brought up, uh, through the beginning part of the, of the season evenings, afternoons, evenings are the hunt timing of choice. Um, as we transition to, um, you know, the end of October, uh, the, the possibility for a morning sit starts to become a reality. Um, and then as we 
move into um, the first couple of days, first week of November, um, morning is totally an option and all day starts to become uh, much more of like what is um, preferable. Um, And uh, so it just seems to be that that earlier part, uh, mid mid through late, you know, beginning of late October, um, those evenings seem to be the highest quality uh, sit. Um, you, and then basically, as the as October ends, um, the mornings start to see some really good activity, um, daylight. You know, up to an hour or two, um, you know, into the into the the into the first you know hour or two of day, um, and then as it's you know November and basically the seeking intensifies and starts to kind of transition more to the chasing phase, um, it, it becomes uh, a lot easier to get away with some things that maybe you couldn't have you know, just a week earlier, um, you know, just really paying attention to the focus of the, of the animals. I mean, it's, it's kind of some, some basic rut hunting, you know, strategy, um, tied into it is just, just knowing that when, you know, when the bucks are, when the, when the younger bucks are really kind of starting to pester the does a lot, a lot of times, um, the does also, um, their focus shifts. They're a little more um, susceptible to not paying attention to like their security because they're they're being harassed so much that they are very much focused on what the bucks are doing and where they are. You know what their uh, what their posture is when they encounter them. Um, and then as it you know you start to get some of the bigger deer up and moving um the the they themselves have started to kind of let their guard down a little bit um and the does are kind of still you know on edge and then when you get into like that full-blown chasing um you can get away with a lot more um and and then of course you start to move into more of the actual breeding phase of the rut and quite honestly i think Um, I think that there's probably some of the best opportunities for some of the biggest and most mature bucks are, are during the lockdown. Um, I think that quite often those deer tend to segregate, um, or separate, uh, a a hot doe and they really want to move her away from every, from all the other deer. They, they just want to be, they just want to be alone with their doe. And I think that their testosterone level is so high that in a lot of cases, as long as that doe doesn't spook, like you can make moves on that buck and that buck can literally see you or, or detect your movement or something. And he's so wound up that he's thinking it's just basically another, uh, you know, another buck, another deer, um, that quite often that their their reaction is to stand their ground or to confront but once that doe 
figures out what's going on and she she takes off he's going with her you know what i mean but i feel like a lot of those big bucks they get and and the places that they take those does are like just they don't they're not necessarily random they seem random you'll see them in crazy places but they're there for a reason because they know that that's an area that they're not going to or they feel that they're not going to get pestered by other deer and so um every now and then you can get fortunate enough to have that scenario kind of play out on your, on your property with the right, you know, with having habitat that's kind of supports that. Um, you know, you hear, you know, a lot about, you know, those random little brushy ditches out in the middle of a field that's wide open for hundreds of acres around it. And that's where they are, you know, um, you know, this year, I think it was November. Yeah, it was, it was November 13th. Um, I actually had to work uh night shift. I was coming home that morning and I was thinking to myself, this is, it's, it's interesting because all I saw for most of my ride home were immature bucks doing the walk, doing, doing the walk around where they're just like, you know, have that frantic look on their face. Like where'd everybody go? (laughs) You know, where, where all the, you know, where'd all the ladies go, you know? And, um, and I was thinking to myself, they're, they're locked down. There's a lot, I'm, uh, this is a, a peak breeding date. Um, I didn't see any does. I only saw immature bucks for most of the ride, but then <laughs> right towards the end of the end of the ride home, I saw, um, two of the biggest bucks I saw last year, uh, with does pinned down practically on top of the road. And they allowed me to basically drive by them multiple times, you know, with my head out the window, you know, gawking, like, you know, holy, you know, <laughs> and, and they did not just turn and run. You know what I mean? They stood there and they were between me in a truck and the dough and stood there like standing their ground, you know, and, so I, I think that in that peak breeding phase, there's actually some pretty good opportunities there. Um, the, the hardest part would be, you know, I don't think you can really manage a plan for that. Um, you know, cause it, it, it does have a certain level of randomness. I, I think, a, a you know, I think, um, maybe there's a possibility there where, um, a certain doe group, you know, lives in a certain area and it's quite possible that there's little pockets of, of, you know, type that type of cover nearby to where those does live that a buck or bucks will end up pushing a doe to. But I, you know, year in and year out, it's, you know, a place where a buck at the right time, you know, but you have no way of really like other than, you know, from like November 10th through like November 17th or something, like literally being in that tree the entire time, you know, like, right. yeah, I don't think you can really, really, um, manage for that particular scenario, but it's just a, um, you know, an observation I've, I've had on mature bucks in terms of timing, um, uh, killing them, but, um, back, you know, I digress. <laughs> uh, I think the timing, for the small property is extremely critical. Um, understanding it is, you know, um, gonna, is going to be the make or break. Um, 
if it's a, if it's the type of scenario where you're really um, kind of focusing that rut hunting, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm basically, you know, gonna, gonna, you know, say pretty much what everybody already knows. I mean, it's, it's the rut. Um, you're hunting, you know, you should be hunting where the does are and the bucks are going to be there. And it's a matter of spending the time. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a certain element of that, but, um, you know, that's, that's really kind of the gist is, is just understanding using trail cameras. Um, you know, I think people rely on trail cameras too much, but I also think that they do, um, when you, when you kind of step back from it and step back from them and you just understand it and, and, um, kind of understand that it's, it's data to be observed. It's not, um, a way to like try to, um, necessarily come up with a formula for a game plan to kill a, you know, uh, kill a deer or something. Like, I think you just, you start to keep track of those dates, um, that you're seeing historically, you, you start to keep track of the, the weather, um, and, uh, other conditions, maybe wind direction, stuff like that. And you start to build a picture of, seems like, you know, for several years now in this three day window, um, you know, uh, with a, as long as there's a West wind and it's cold or colder than the preceding days, this three, four, five day, whatever window that seems to be when I need to be there. Well, guess what? That's when you need to be there. <laughs> yeah, without a doubt. You know, so there's definitely a lot of things I take away from this. Number number one, I mean, y- there's you got to scale back. There's there's definitely a level of unpredictability when it comes to hunting whitetails, and I think that's why we love it so much. Um, mm-hmm. But that uh, that concept of really figuring out your timing like you talked about and that's a whole other episode in and of itself because that that's <laughs> yeah. like the strategy okay. of whitetail hunting itself but my biggest takeaway from this is you know and it's it's not just on these micro tracks i think it's just magnified but you cannot at out habitat or out manipulate the habitat um you you can't outdo that in relation to pressure you you can't out outdo that like no amount of habitat yeah. work and manipulation or property manipulation is going to be your trump card and and like set above your pressure and learning that timing of your property what you can get away with how often like you said for yours that you can hunt morning afternoon and midday under the right circumstances but that was something you learned and I think anybody yeah. listening to this needs to understand that not every property is like that. And you might have a track similar to size to yours, Phil, but your best mm-hmm. chance of reaching the goal that we had described before might be a, a much narrower window, or maybe it's only an evening stand at certain times of the year or something along those lines. But you just yeah. cannot yep. out-habitat the pressure. No, I completely, completely agree. Um, you know, I think that's a huge thing and, and having, I think, uh, you know, having, you know, backup plans or, you know, whatever it is, uh, you know, I, me personally, I'm fortunate enough to live in an area with, um, a really, really, um, you know, large amount of, of public land. 
Um, and so when I want to hunt and, you know, the conditions aren't right for my place, you know, I can go find a place where the conditions should be right, or I think they might be right, or I hope they might be right, you know? Um, and, and just realizing that, you know, yeah, you can put a lot of work into a small property. Um, you can really get into the micromanaging of it. Um, and you might only be looking at, you know, uh, let's just say single digit number of hunts per season. Um, now sometimes, uh, you're like, you know, a lot of people be like, well, put all this time and effort into it. I'm hunting it, you know, and I get that. Quality over quantity. That's what we said before, man. Correct. Exactly. And, um, you know, most of the, of the bucks I've shot at my place the last few years have been inside of five sits. And I think the last three were, I think the last three were, uh, three sits and in. Wow. Um, yeah. And so, um, you know, that, that's, that's just because I've, I've gotten to the point where I kind of have a good, you know, understanding of, of when to strike, you know, but I also went out of my way to try to make, um, make it a, you know, a location that I can do that as many times as I possibly can before the pressure is detected and, and it, the quality drops off. Um, and, uh, so, you know, sometimes, some years I, I, I mean, I would feel pretty comfortable, um, hunting it out to, you know, into the double digits, um, given the conditions are repeating to be correct, you know, being right. Um, but, uh, but Hey, if, uh, you do all that work and then, you know, on the first, <laughs> first hunt or second hunt or whatever, it works out, then, you know, that's kind of what you did it for. <laughs> right. Um, so, uh, but having, having backup plans, um, or, or other places getting permission somewhere, um, you know, uh, travel, doing a travel hunt, going somewhere, you know, going to another state, whatever, trying something new, um, and those are all things too, and I think are super important, not just for the micro property, um, you know, managers, but everybody, I think, I think you got to get out of your comfort zone. You got to go do new things. You got to try different hunts, different hunting styles, different hunting strategies, different types of habitat and terrain and stuff like that. You just, I think you, you, you sharpen a lot of those skills and, um, and they make you a better killer. Um, and I think, I think that's something that's a lot of times is lost, um, these days is that, um, you know, I think social media, um, and just everybody's, uh, you know, connectedness now, um, and everybody's access and exposure to information and content has made for, um, a lot of hunters who probably, are passing opportunities for a harvest that, um, you know, I think they would benefit from actually shooting. Um, and I'm not saying just in terms of bucks, I mean, just deer in general. Um, I had a mentor that really drove it home to me 
early on, and he said, the only way to get good at killing deer is by killing deer. Um, I think there's just, there's a lot of, a lot of things where you go through that whole sequence, that adrenaline dump and all that, like the more times you do it, the more exposed you are to it, the better able you are to execute. Mm -hmm. So to go through all these things, put all this work in and have an opportunity present itself and have a complete, you know, buck fever meltdown and not make a shot, miss or wound an animal. Like, you know, I think it can be prevented by, you know, being a trigger puller um, and getting out there. I mean, you know, a lot of places where people hunt these days, there is an overpopulation of does. And in order to um, effectively manage habitat, um, quite often, sometimes very specifically manage habitat on a smaller scale, like on a micro property, you got to take some does out because sometimes, um, you know, that you're, you're going to have more mouths than you can really feed or keep up with. Um, and, uh, you know, I think those are valuable, valuable experiences, um, for people. Uh, and not only that, I mean, it's really good eating, you know, great. It's great. Great it's great opportunity. Have. It's great eating. There's no doubt. Oh yeah. man. Well, hey Phil, um, I, I really appreciate you divesting all that information because I think it's really applicable for you know closing out the series that we talked about. Do you have any closing remarks or closing thoughts about it before we let you go? Um, not just really. You know, I uh, appreciate you taking the time, having me on. Um, you know, listen to me. Uh, ramble uh for for i don't even know how long at this point um i can t- already tell my my throat's getting a little uh <laughs> a little scratchy um well, hey it, likewise i, to, I appreciate yeah absolutely likewise i appreciate you taking the time to come on to our on to our episode you know you've been uh you've been a great support here from the beginning at pennsylvania woodsman and i want i want nothing more to continue uh continue this relationship and, and keep having you on because i think you got a lot of good information um to share to a lot of our listeners yeah absolutely man anytime um you know definitely look forward to it um and uh, likewise, you know, I, I appreciate uh, what you're doing with the podcast and, and um, you know, getting uh, getting uh, the type of people you have on and, and uh, being able to uh, get that information out and share it with people. And, um, you know, uh, uh, from one, you know, Pennsylvanian to, to another, you know, I think the uh, I, I, I really I'm super proud of uh you know, where I live and, and the, the ability to hunt the the type of places that I get to hunt here in Pennsylvania. And I'm glad that, uh, you know, there's a a show like yours out there. That's kind of, you know, showcasing that. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate that. Until then, we'll just keep on grinding at it. Absolutely, man. Thank you. Have a good night, man. You too. Thanks again, Phil. We'll see you. See you.